Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoger, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. Venezuela has been in a downward spiral for years. Political repression and economic depression. Hyperinflation, power cuts, shortages of food and medicine. According to the UN, some 9 million Venezuelans are malnourished and 90% of the country's 28 million people live in poverty. More than 5 million people have fled the country in the past few years. By any definition, what was once the richest and strongest democracy in South America is now a failed state. My guest today has lived and suffered from that failure. David Smolansky was elected mayor of El Hatillo municipality in Caracas in 2013. In 2017, he was removed from office by the Supreme Court and then forced to flee the country. Today, he is in political exile in Washington, D.C. Welcome, David. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. Let's start with an impossible question, and I promise they'll get more possible. Can you imagine life after Maduro, or more importantly, a world in which Venezuela is again a prosperous democracy? And if so, how? Uh, I imagine that every day, and I'm, I'm not ex- exaggerating when I when I say this. Um, uh, a Venezuela without Maduro is a Venezuela that could be a country with uh, plenty of opportunities, a country that, uh, first of all, need to be safe, especially for young Venezuelans, a country that could Uh, again, export oil, but also could diversify its economy. A country that could be one of the best countries to visit in the world because of our tourism uh, potential. And at the same time, Alan, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, the day that Maduro uh, will be out of power will be a day of celebration, not only in Venezuela, but all over the world. I think we're going to see those millions of Venezuelans and many others celebrating that Maduro is not anymore in power and Venezuela is recovering democracy. So, yes, I think that every single day of my life. What would it take to get to that day? It has to take everything and anything. I I think that uh, any option today in Venezuela is legitimate to protect millions of Venezuelans that are suffering from starvation, that are suffering from disease that are suffering from crimes against humanity, that are suffering from human rights violation, that uh, the only option for many families in Venezuela to survive is to flee uh, the country. So uh, we need the pressure internally, but also we need more pressure from the international community because what Maduro has built is not only threatening Venezuelans and affecting Venezuelans, but it has become a threat to the security, stability, and democracy of, of the hemisphere. Let's separate those two streams and first talk about external pressure and then internal pressure. The Maduro regime, the Maduro government, has support from at least five countries, from Russia, from China, from Cuba, from Iran, and from Turkey. What are they providing and why do you think they provide it? Well, first of all, those countries have one thing in common, the lack of democracy. So, you know, to, to, to do any, for example, business or any military cooperation 
or any other type of cooperation uh, is easier for those countries who lack of democracy than the countries that have uh, democracies, countries that have uh, independence of, of public uh, branches. Of course, uh, the, the, the interests of those countries, first of all, is geopolitically, especially from Russia. Uh, they, are, they are having an influence in Venezuela that they haven't found in the region since the days of the Cold War with Cuba. Also, of course, is, is the economic interest on a country that has the largest oil reserve, the eighth largest gas reserve, the 12th largest gold reserve. So, so many business today in Venezuela are run, are run by Russians, are run by Iranians, are, are, are run by, by Chinese. Um, and at the same time, they are playing to destabilize the region to make the democracies in the region, especially on so many countries in Latin America, uh, uh, more fragile. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the democracies of the world, especially the one from the Western Hemisphere, need to tackle this. Uh, and I think, well, the, the, the United States, uh, they, they have played a very important role during the last two years. Canada, uh, we need more support from countries like uh, Germany, UK, France, and the, and the Kingdom of the Netherlands, Brazil, Colombia. I think right now Venezuela is, has to be more focused not on the quantity of countries that are recognizing the interim government, but the quality of, of, of the countries to counterbalance these uh, five uh, allies that Maduro has. And are, they are, of course, uh, part of this uh, repression system, which, by the way, I, I didn't say Cuba. Cuba has played a crucial role since 1999 when the revolution started and, and the Cubans right now basically runs the, the intelligence, the counterintelligence system, uh, all the repression uh, uh, strategy. Uh, even they, they have um, given instructions to torture innocent Venezuelans and these need to stop uh, as soon as possible. However, Venezuela for those five countries is a bit of a black hole in the sense that it absorbs resources. Uh, it, it is a black eye for the United States, staying with the theme, uh, but it's not, it's not imaginable that Venezuela is giving much to Russia, to China, to Iran, perhaps even to Cuba at this point. Um, so it seems a bit strange other than it is a way to embarrass the United States that they continue to support? Well, you know, that's that's kind of because, for example, to Cuba, Chavez and Maduro have provided everything to that island, everything. Uh, still, uh, a country that used to produce uh, almost 3 million barrels a day, now it is producing uh, less than 700,000 uh, old barrels a day. Many of those uh, thousands of barrels that are produced every day goes to Cuba. And during the last 22 years, Hundreds on hundreds of millions of barrels have gone to 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 Cuba. Uh, so that's the price that Venezuelans uh, unfairly we have we have paid on. And in exchange, Cuba has sent doctors and teachers that were more like a intelligence structure that were built in Venezuela. Um, for example, Just since since this is an audio take, and I have yes. the virtue of watching you as well, you just used air quotes. Which are very important air quotes on the words doctors. Yeah, because those, a lot of them, they were not doctors. They just were intelligent agents uh, that, you know, that just infiltrated or penetrated uh, different cities in, in my country. 
But I also have to say that, for example, Russia is running now the biggest uh, gas field that Venezuela has uh, in the country, which is located at the east. So they have they have their interest. They have their interest. As I said, Venezuela is a very rich country. But at both of that, especially in the case of Russia, China, and Iran, at both of that, is that they have found a geopolitical strategy uh, through Venezuela to counterbalance the influence of the U.S., in this region. Let's remember that Maduro's regime, it is, it is a dictatorship that protects, protects sorry, uh, terrorism, especially from those uh, guerrilla groups from Colombia that they have found protection in, in Venezuela. So we are now witnessing an, a very, very dangerous synergy between the Colombia irregular groups, which are terrorist groups such as ELN, uh, the Iranians, the Cuban intelligence, China, Russia, irregular armed groups that were uh, founded in, in Venezuela. And all of that, by the way, is run through illicit economy because it's not run by oil. It's run through drug trafficking, illegal mining, smuggling, uh, human trafficking. And as I said, this is not only affecting Venezuelans. This is affecting, in my opinion, uh, the whole region. The other side of it, and you, you touched on it already, is... The rest of the democracies, or rather the democracies in the Americas, starting with the United States, but, but throughout Central and South America, um, as well as the Europeans and others. And most countries in the world have recognized Guaido and the Guaido government. Most countries have condemned the Maduro regime, uh, the OAS, uh, various other global organizations, but without consequence. Maduro is still there. The sanctions get ever tighter. Uh, the people of Venezuela pay the cost of the, those sanctions. Um, two related questions. What should the United States do? What should other countries do to try to get to that dream that you articulated at the start of our conversation? Yes. Well, if I may, just to say something before uh, answering two questions, um, I don't think sanctions have affected Venezuelans. The worst sanction that we have is Maduro's regime. Uh, the, the vast majority of the sanctions that have been applied uh, in Venezuela are individual sanctions and are sanctions that not only have been implemented by the U.S., but also countries like Canada, Panama, and the European Union. Uh, sanctions against the ones who are involved in crimes against humanity, human rights violations, drug trafficking, corruption, money laundry. And there are some economical sanctions. But I can tell you, I have visited the region so many times in my work. I haven't heard the first Venezuelan who have fled the country saying to me that they have fled uh, Venezuela because of, of a sanction. So so that's that's a myth that, unfortunately, there are some people, some organizations are, you know, um, building that myth and, and trying to create misinformation on the public opinion. Um, having said that, um, let me just interrupt right there because that's a terribly important point. People underestimate how bad the economic management has been for a long time now. Venezuela's collapsed economy, I would argue, I would ask, is a function of mismanagement more than it is of sanctions. That was really the point you just made. Totally. Yeah. For example, Iran is a country that is sanctioned and they, they are they are producing way, way more, more oil than, than than Venezuela. And you can find, I can assure you, more food and more medicine in Tehran than in that in any city of, of Venezuela. 
Maduro's regime is not a conventional dictatorship anymore. This is a criminal state, and it is a kleptocracy where, according to so many experts, well-respected experts from Venezuela and other parts of the world, it is estimated that in, in these 22 years, approximately $1 trillion have been robbed in Venezuela. And I can assure you, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I can assure you that by the time we restore democracy in Venezuela and we start to do investigations, this will be, this will be the biggest robbery on the modern history of the world by far, I'm sure. So everything that goes to to the Venezuelan uh, accounts is literally robbed by, by these gangs. And, and it's not only Maduro. We are talking here of different... Uh, uh, people that are, are part of the regime that they behave like a like a drug cartel literally this is a drug cartel that is that is usurping power that controls the infrastructure of the state that runs oil fields that run guys gas fields and of course people are completely unprotected so on the question that you asked me before what I, the us uh, should do in my opinion is to put more pressure i i 100% agree with more individual sanctions sanctions I uh, I support any asset, any any funds, any any bank account that is found from these uh, corrupt people to be uh, frozen. I think that the initiative that I, I started a year ago on the on the Caribbean with this the, uh, against the drug trafficking in the Caribbean that started President Trump, which has been the biggest operation in the Caribbean against drug trafficking, should. Uh, should keep uh, the word the, the work uh, and 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 of course not not stop providing assistance to Venezuelans through humanitarian aid inside Venezuela, which is very difficult, but at the same time to the Venezuelan migrants and refugees because the people who are fleeing Venezuela, of course, it are they are very vulnerable situation. That's that's what I what I what I think. And the, re- and, and the same opinion for the rest of the countries in the region and other parts like like, like Europe. We need to put more pressure uh, on, 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 on Maduro. And as I said before, and some, for, for, for some people, this is very controversial. In my opinion, any option in Venezuela is legitimate. And when I say this, there are different uh, doctrines according to the international law that could be implemented in the case of Venezuela, such as the responsibility to protect. The responsibility to protect is a UN doctrine that said that has three pillars. The first one is that you you have to, to you you need to you have to try to avoid uh, crimes against humanity and atrocities. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen in Venezuela. It was not avoided. Then you have. The second pillar that is, let's try to solve this through a diplomatic way, through a negotiation. Well, in Venezuela, you have had more than 20 roundtables of negotiations with international community as observer, and there has not, there has not, there was no agreement. And the third pillar is, well, you you can use uh, the force. It is legitimate to use the force through a humanitarian ways to protect the people who are suffering. So. Those are, those are, in my opinion, the, the policies that should be discussed right now on the, on the international community. Of course, if we can solve this through a free and fair elections, I'll be happy to, 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 to solve it like that. Of course, if Maduro tomorrow resigns because you have so many people protesting on the streets, on the streets, of course, I'm going to support that. But it will be irresponsible and naive to not think on other options when you have a drug cartel running the country and making so many people 
uh, uh, suffer because of hunger, because of diseases, and because of, 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 of forced migration. So let me underline that. You would be prepared to support uh, military intervention, put aside by whom and how. That's old school. That's old school. That's old school uh, way to say. <clears throat> I think we are in a different world that we we saw 15 years ago with our Iraq war for Afghanistan or or even before that. But uh, but but as I said, the responsibility to protect that one of its pillars is a humanitarian use of force to protect people that are suffering from crimes and humanitarian atrocities should be considered in the in the in the international. Considered by whom? Sorry? Considered by whom? By the international community. Uh, and, and, and the first that should consider these are the countries who are getting the impact of this uh, crisis. Uh, Colombia made huge progress during the last 20 years uh, tackling the irregular armed groups, uh, getting a, a peace process. Uh, getting the support from the U.S., what it's called in Spanish, Plan Colombia, the Colombian plan. Well, that's in jeopardy right now because of the Maduro regime. All the effort that that, that Colombia has made during the last uh, 20 years uh, are are you know are are in, are are in jeopardy because of what is going on in 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 Venezuela. So, of course, what I what I'm, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm I'm aware that it's not easy. I'm aware that you cannot reveal all your strategies when you are facing such a uh, such a complicated uh, enemy as Maduro's regime, because it's not only Maduro, as we spoke earlier, it's Russia, it's Iran, it's Cuba. They have their interests in Venezuela, but uh, if, if Maduro uh, manages to, to 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 stay longer in power, uh, I think the consequences that we that, that we would have in the region are really concerning. Are really concerning, and we we have to try to avoid uh, that. But to summarize the point, Venezuela is clearly a case study of the failure of global governance. It's the failure of uh, R2P. Uh, it has not been implemented uh, other than through sanctions, endless reports. Uh, R2P has probably generated more reports by more organizations um, th than any other UN initiative. Uh, the OAS uh, is not does not have a robust history of of supporting interventions. Uh, so, in practical terms, I'm I, I don't mean to press you, but I, do, I am pressing you. I'm not sure where who's going to answer your plea, which is understandable. That when all else fails, it's it's what American diplomats and, and presidents like to say: all options are on the table. But when they say it. <laughs> they have options that are actually on the, they have a table and they have options, but I'm not sure where the table is and, and what the options are. Well, but for example, what happened in Panama 30 years ago in Panama, you know, Noriega was a drug trafficker. And at the end of the day, uh, uh, the U S had to, to act. I think this is worse than, than Panama. And I think Alan, with you to respect to the international community, which has which, we, which I'm, as a Venezuelan, I'm grateful on the efforts that they have made during the last years to restore democracy and to help, especially the people who are suffering. But the thing is that so many underestimated Hugo Chavez in the past and underestimated even Nicolás Maduro. And, and so many governments in the world where, you know, uh, they just fell in love with all the money that, that Chavez uh, had. 
And, and I think the biggest lesson in Venezuela for Venezuelans and for the world is that Hugo Chavez probably is the best example how democracy was used to destroy democracy, how he took advantage of democratic tools to conquer power, and from power, they, he destroyed those uh, democratic tools. He was elected in a free and fair elections. He was elected in a system that was that had, that that we used to have democracy. He was elected in a in a system that we we had a, a we used to have a independent independent uh, media. He was elected in a in a in a in a system that there was no political prisoners. So of course, as as every democracy, of course. There were problems in Venezuela in the 1990s. Insecurity was getting worse. We had an inflation. Poverty was growing. But we were a democracy. We needed to fix that democracy. But the democracy was not supposed to fix with this type of, of, of criminal regime. So for, for me, Chavez is, is the main example how democracy could be used to destroy democracy. So many people, so many countries underestimated that. And now we are paying the consequences. Not that long ago, it looked like the opposition, led by Juan Guaido, was actually making headway to replace the regime. I remember the images of the confrontation on the bridge at Cucuta uh, two years ago in, in 2019, uh, when at least for a moment, there was one, literally one day, one night, where it felt from a distance like the regime might crack. It felt like one of those moments that you could imagine everything might change. But somehow it didn't. Somehow the regime consolidated. They were brutal. They were violent. Uh, they didn't let the food in. The Kukuta moment passed. What happened? Well, I was there uh, in Kukuta, and I've been there many times. Uh, that day I saw all the criminal portfolio that the regime has. So they put everyone on the bridge. They put uh, security forces. They put irregular armed groups. They uh, even allegedly took people from jail to block uh, and burn the, the the humanitarian aid, and and it was a it was a very peaceful uh, protest or not even protest. It was a peaceful action to try to get a food and medicine in Venezuela, and it was blocked and burned by 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 these criminals. And they don't care. They don't care. We have to understand who, who Nicolás Maduro is and who is Diosdado Cabello and Tarek Al-Aizami and all of these thugs that are in, in, in power right now in Venezuela. Those are the ones who just two, three weeks ago said that the vaccines will be uh, will be priority for the armed forces, especially for, for the generals that the vaccines will be a priority for the members of its political party, that will be a priority for any member that are part of the cabinet of the regime. That's the type of, of, of dictator that we're facing in Venezuela. Not, the, the vaccines in Venezuela were not um, a priority for people who are in the hospitals, like doctors and nurses. Or were not a priority for people who are uh, in 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 a, in a elderly age, 60, 65 and above, according to our constitution. This is this is a quote from Maduro. What I'm saying, and he also said uh, three years ago that if we cannot win by votes, we're gonna win by uh, bullets and with and with arms. 
with weapons. Sorry. So this is the type of, of regime that 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 we are facing. And in Cúcuta, as I said, I mean the, that that criminal portfolio was deployed, and, and 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 it was not possible to get the humanitarian aid. I was there. Um, many people got injured. Many people got gassed. Uh, so many soldiers that they, they stopped being loyal to Maduro and and across to to Colombia. And even though there was an important support of Colombia and the OES, especially Secretary General Luis Almagro, among others, President from Paraguay and Chile, it was not possible because, as I said, we are not dealing with politicians. We are dealing with criminals. So I don't know, I mean, how Pablo Escobar ended in Colombia, how Chapo Guzman ended in Mexico. Those are the type of cycle that we are facing in Venezuela. And I'm not exaggerating 22 years of this. Last December, the government held elections and the opposition boycotted, which some have said removed legitimacy from Guaido and the interim government. I'm not sure that's a fair criticism. And on the other hand, Secretary Blinken recently spoke with President Guaido, which implied continuing U.S. support. What is the actual status of Guaido and his government? Where, where do things stand now? So Juan Guaido is the interim president of Venezuela. He is the legitimate head of state of Venezuela, and he's a he's a, a warrior. He's a hero. He's been facing all type of threats during the last two years, not only against him, against his inner circle, against his family, and he's still, you know, uh, in Venezuela. Uh, working very hard and representing Venezuelans who want uh, democracy. Uh, what happened on December, it, it was completely a fraud. It is uh, illegitimate. It was not recognized by the vast majority of the countries in Latin America. It was not recognized by the OES. It was not recognized by the U.S., by Canada, by the European Union. As you said, the U.S. Uh, keep recognizing interim President Guaido. So many people thought that with the change of administration in the U.S., uh, the recognition of the interim president was about to change, and you know uh, the, the support has been very clear from from this new administration. Um, because at the end of the day, you know it is clear that so many people in Venezuela are suffering, and I think Alan, this is the key thing at the end of the day to think on the people, to think on the people. Nine point three million people in Venezuela are in starvation. That's almost the whole population of Cuba. When people say Venezuela is going to be another Cuba, we are now in a situation that is worse than Cuba. With due respect to my fellow Cubans, my father is Cuban, but the situation in Venezuela now is worse than Cuba. There are more flights from the U.S. and other parts of the world to Havana than to Caracas. And 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 so, so one third of the population is, is in a starvation and almost 20% of the population had to flee the country. So, so I, I think the international community is, is, is aware of this. But the thing is that, as I said before, it was underestimated for, year, for years, sorry, the, um, the dimension of criminality that was built in, uh, in Venezuela. But President Guaido is the legitimate president. He has been recognized by, by, by the majority of the international community, and he is committed to uh, keep working and keep fighting to restore democracy and freedom, and the world should support him. Let me ask a personal question. 
you were, as I said at the top, uh, elected mayor. Uh, the Supreme Court removed you because you were doing your job, near as I can tell. Um, but then I don't know what happens. I know that you had to flee Venezuela. Um, I'm sure it was unpleasant, to put it mildly. But but can you just tell us a bit of, of what, what happened? Once you were driven from office. Yes. Well, if you give me a few minutes, I'll, I'll share with you the whole story. Uh, it was uh, Monday, August 7th. Uh, I finished my, my work. Uh, and when I got um, to my house, my lawyer called me and told me that the illegitimate Supreme Court in Venezuela, controlled by the regime, posted in Facebook that I have to, that I have to face a trial in, in, in 36 hours. So those were my last 36 hours in, in kind of freedom because I, I think my liberties were already restricted in that moment. And again, using the, I say that in English, sorry, the air quotes. So, um, so on, on that 36 hours, I said goodbye to, to my family. Uh, I said goodbye to all the, the great the service men and service women that are were with me when I was a mayor. I had a chance to make a, a a, a meeting with with a lot of neighbors of Felatillo, uh, thousands of people gathered on, on the last hours, and I went to to clandestinity because I knew what is what, what was going to be the the decision of the trial. I was uh, sentenced for prison. Uh, my 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 jail that it was there was assigned. It is the same jail where so many political prisoners have been, where so many political prisoners have been torture where some political prisoners have been killed. So I knew that that was going to be the sentence. So on August 9th, I started my clandestinity. I spent in on that situation uh, 35 days. Uh, approximately on the day 18, 19, I decided that uh, I have to go to exile, that the, the best uh, way to keep working for my country is doing it on exile. So I started to plan my my route to escape. Uh, Maduro, knowing that I was in exile, he uh, uh, prohibited any uh, sailing from uh, of ships in, on the coast. So my first option was to flee the country through uh, using a fish boat on the on the west coast of Venezuela. I couldn't do it. The other option was through Colombia, why? But I was not. I was not secure that, that, that there was a way to do it. So I decided to do something surprisingly for the regime, but risky because of the, of the length that it was fleeing through Brazil. So I, I have always had a beer. I had to shave my beer. Um, I, had to use, I had to use some uh, glasses like the ones that you, you have. I had to use um, a flat hat. And I had to wear a cloth like a seminarist. Uh, like he was going working with priests in church, and I started my my journey that took three four days. Uh, they the security forces were not able to recognize me. Um, I had I I was able to go through more than 30, 30 security checkpoints. In eight of them, the car was uh, the car was asked to stop. In four of out of eight. I was asked to get out of the car. Uh, they didn't recognize who I was because I my my physical aspect was completely changed, and uh, I was able to get to 
to Brazil. And since then, I have not been able to go back to Venezuela. My exile started in September of 2017. And since then, well, uh, I have been living in exile. I go to, to Brazil. I always be grateful to the minister, former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Brazil, Aloysio Nunes, who uh, received me at the Itamaraty uh, Palace and then the, the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs Office, which is called Itamaraty Palace. I made public my exile in, in Brazil. And then because I have a, a, a very, very good friend that lives in Washington, when he saw that, he told me, you have to come to my house and stay here and see what happens. And, and she just, my ex had started in his, in his sofa bed, uh, where, is, where I lived the first three months. And, and then, well, I started to work at the, at, the, at the OES as a special envoy for Venezuela migrants and refugees because it was really shocking to me when I fled Venezuela. And so, so many other Venezuelans like me fleeing the country. In my case, I was forced to flee because of a human rights violation. But in the case of others, they were fleeing because of, 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 of starvation or, or insecurity. So I, I felt that someone had to work on that. And, and, and I'm sorry if I, if I talk too much, but that was the story of my, of my escape. And I dream every day to go back to Venezuela. I think the most powerful thing that will happen in Venezuela will not only, will not only be the restoration of democracy and freedom, but give the chance to that point, to that 5.5 million that have fled to go back and reunite with their families. That's the biggest, biggest dream and wish for every Venezuelan who, who is abroad to go back and reunite with their family. And that's, that's what I'm working every day. Well, thank you for sharing the story and thank you very much for the dream. I hope, and I'm sure everyone who's listening to this hopes that you will invite us when you're back in Caracas and we can, we can celebrate with you and the reunited families. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much for having me. And when we have democracy in Venezuela, Alan, you will be invited. I will take you to El Atillo, which is the most beautiful place in Caracas. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org and please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.